This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Law, part of the New Books Network with me, Antonia Layard. I'm here with Barrett Marcani, who has written a compelling book, Slavery and the Death Penalty, A Study in Abolition. Barrett, it's so lovely to have the opportunity to talk with you today. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. So what enticed you, Barrett, as a British researcher to focus on this American question? Well, Um, It all started in the law school at the University of Bristol, actually, where you are. Um, It would have been in around 1999, 2000, when I was in my final year of my law degree. I had no idea what I was going to do after graduating, but I was interested in human rights law. So I spoke to my human rights tutor about career prospects in the field. This was before human rights law became in vogue um, and popular as a career choice. And it turned out that a former student of uh, Professor David Cowan was now in New Orleans defending people facing the death penalty with a law firm that was run by the British lawyer, Clive Stafford-Smith. Through that link, I got an internship there. From there, I went on to work in Washington, D.C. on the issue of juveniles, 16 and 17-year-olds facing the death penalty. But that was more research and policy rather than um, trials and appeals. And I felt better suited to research. So that sort of led me to academia, if you like, and Given my work experience in the USA on capital punishment, the death penalty inevitably became um, a feature of my research interests. It became part of my research agenda. Um, As for the slavery and race aspect, well, there's been a lot of work on the historical and the conceptual links between slavery, racism and the criminal justice system at large in in America. And you can't really understand the death penalty in America without understanding its roots in race, slavery and racism. I didn't initially think I would have anything to contribute to that because so much has been written about it. But just by reading around the subject, I realized that actually there is this gap in the literature on the links between the abolitionists. So while there's been a lot of work on the relationship between slavery and the death penalty as institutions, there hadn't been so much um, work on the links between those who oppose slavery and those who oppose the death penalty. Angela Davis and all the prison abolitionists have done a lot on the links between those who oppose slavery and those who oppose prison as a whole. But I wanted to focus more on the death penalty. So, so yeah, that drew me to that subject. Well, that's just fascinating. Thank you. And you start the book with the story of Sojourner Truth near the end of her life when she travelled to Lansing, the state capital of Michigan, to give testimony against the Wyckoff Hanging Bill. She said that the bill shocked her more than slavery. What was it about that moment in 1881 that was a good place for you to start your analysis? 
although just my interest in race and criminal justice system had um, drawn me to this book called Worse Than Slavery by David Oshinsky, and it's about racism in parchment, the Mississippi penitentiary. And I was curious about that quote, Worse Than Slavery, that featured in the title. So I did a bit of digging, led me to the speech by Sergeant of Truth in 1881, when she says that the news that Missouri is thinking of bringing back the death penalty shocked her worse than slavery in inverted commas. And that struck me as a perfect quote because it drew together the three strands of the book. Slavery, because Sergeant of Truth had been a slave. The death penalty, that's what she was talking about. And the relationship between activism and abolitionism. Truth made that speech in a position as a social justice activist. Um, so if um, if Oshinsky hadn't already titled this book Worse Than Slavery, I probably would have used that as a title for my book. That makes perfect sense. And so this these three strands, I'm wondering about your own researcher positionality, whether you felt that this was an activist book, your position as a scholar, how you reconciled those different parts of your life, really. Yeah, that's that's always been a struggle, that sort of balance between activism and academia. Um, and uh, Du Bois talks about this a lot in his work and and he talks about the necessity to be a scholar activist, the idea that scholars should use their, their scholarly background for activist purposes. Oh, it is a difficult balance to draw. You have to maintain that objectivity. Um, but I wanted this to be readable for anti-death penalty activists. Um, so that was definitely influence. I wanted this to be of practical use to those on the ground, of interest to those on the ground. So that definitely influenced and shaped my approach to writing it. Um, I think Du Bois talks about this sociology of the oppressed and the idea that if you're talking about an issue, a subject, then the people who are most affected by that subject, that issue, should inform your research. So I was very um, keen to make sure that this was informed by conversations with activists, with death penalty abolitionists on the ground to make sure that I was a researcher, to make sure that I was reflecting what was going on. Um, so, so yeah, those, those definitely did shape that sort of, uh, activist side did shape my approach to research. That's really interesting. And I found reading the book, it's, it's beautifully written Barrett and Thank in you. a very readable narrative style, quite sparsely footnoted by legal standards, uh, perhaps using more historical than socio-legal style. And I wondered whether this was a conscious choice and whether you think of it as a socio-legal book. Yeah, I do. It was a conscious choice. Like I said, it really was a, a conscious choice in that I wanted it to be accessible to to activists as well, um, to non-scholarly audiences, if you like, to people who aren't in academia. Um, as for those sort of disciplinary distinctions between sort of historical books on one hand, socio-legal books on the other hand, you know, maybe I'm a bit naive, but I don't really see those sorts of distinctions. I mean, there's historical elements to it just by nature of the subject matter, but there's straight up doctrinal law in there as well when I'm just sort of setting out the legal structure that governs the use of the death penalty today. And there's the socio-legal element in that it explores the societal impacts of, of legal change. You know, one of the questions is, what effect does a change in law have on social attitudes, social practices? Um, and that was one of the issues with slavery, for example. Yes, there was a change in law to abolish slavery, but it didn't affect racial prejudices so much. And that sort of feeds into the concern I have with the death penalty and that it can't just be about going for a change in the law. It can't just be about the abolition of the death penalty in formal legalistic terms. 
It also requires a change in attitudes towards things such as retribution, punishments, um, and those sort of issues. So it has the socio-legal elements, I think, in that respect. Yes, so very much law and society and the two working reflexively to produce the problem. Absolutely. Great. And what about methodologies and methods? Could you tell us a bit about writing the book? Did you, you know, were there dusty archives and creaky film footage, or was the research online? I Did you spend there time would be. In the yeah, I thought there would be. I thought when I started out, I thought I'd need access to archives for details on slavery abolitionism. Um, I was envisaging interviews with contemporary abolitionists for details on anti-death penalty efforts today. Um, and it started out that way. I uh, went to the British Library. I looked up in, um, in in a bit of archival research. And then as I was sort of digging deeper, I realised that I'm not trying to write a book about the history of slavery abolitionism. Historians have done a very, very good job of that, much better than I could ever do. Uh, and to a large extent, I could rely on those secondary texts. Um, I did reach out to historians in the field to speak to them, to make sure I was understanding um, that topic because it's not something that I was familiar with. And it amazed me how how open a lot of academics are to talking about their research through um, unsolicited calls. I was literally just cold cold calling or cold emailing academics, um, explaining who I was and what I was doing. And they were very receptive to talking to me. So that was really helpful. Um, and that ended up forming the bulk of my research, really, just having those conversations with historians, knowing which text to look out for, which ones. Um, and and then when it came to the sort of death penalty activism side, again, through my work experience in America, through working in the field, I already had contacts with a lot of abolitionists. So that helped greatly in that I could speak to them about what was going on on the ground. But the um, the other thing was that a lot of that information is available online. Um, Anti-death penalty activists are very savvy at using the internet. And so a lot of the materials about the messaging they use and the strategies and the tactics, you could find all of that online, really. So it ended up being very much online, very topical. Um, I think there was a lot of cases going on as I was writing this book, uh, which feed into the book. So there was a lot of contemporary research going on there, a lot of drawing from newspaper articles, which, of course, as any researcher knows, you have to be very careful of when you're when you're using newspaper articles as sources. So, yeah, a variety of sources fed into the work. And in these collaborative academic networks, how did you feel as a British researcher? Were you welcomed because you were a bit of an outsider or did people feel that you were somehow out of place? I never got the feeling that I was viewed with any sort of suspicion. Um, I think certainly in anti-death penalty circles, there's, they very much welcome um, people from other nationalities looking in at what's going on because they want that international pressure. They want people from outside America to know what is going on and, and to help, essentially. Um, so I never felt so much of an outsider in that sense. I do remember giving a paper on this at a conference, Historians Against Slavery. So it's an organization of historians who do work on slavery, but they also take an activist approach towards modern slavery. So they use their historical understanding to tackle modern slavery. And I remember going to a conference there thinking, I'm not a historian. I'm not a specialist in slavery studies. I'm not American. I felt very uh, out of place there, but um, 
that turned out to be one of the most helpful conferences I've been to because I got very, very helpful, very positive, very helpful feedback from historians, from those whose um, specialism was slavery and abolitionism. So, um, so that sort of calmed any nerves I had about how I'd be received, if that makes sense. I think once I realised that's very eminent historians in this field were appreciative of the work I was doing, I realised that, yeah, I probably do have something to offer. How lovely. What a great story. So let's turn to your central argument and let's talk about this for a bit. So your central claim is that we should call for a radical rather than a pragmatic approach to death penalty abolition resting on the concept of dignity. You draw on established thinkers, including Kant and Walkin. And I was wondering if this is a radical concept in this field, dignity. But I was also very struck by your telling of the story of the Arkansas Eight. And I wondered if you could expand on that and your framing of that story as, in a sense, relational dignity, how all our dignity is affronted, both the individuals going through this process, the prison guards and administrators and people in society as a whole. So a broader concept of dignity from what I read. Yeah, sure. That's, um, that is the central claim of the book. Um, so in 1999, I think it was, a book was published. A book was published by Herbert Haynes called "Against the Death Penalty" or "Against Capital Punishment," which looks at the anti-death penalty movement between the years 1976 to 1998. And Herbert Haynes very much looks at this through social movement theory, and he makes the argument at the end of that book that the anti-death penalty movement really needs to frame its um, arguments, couch its arguments in terms that death penalty supporters can relate to or those who don't really have an opinion on the issue can relate to. So in other words, he asks, he calls for this pragmatic approach to abolition. And that involves saying things like you can still achieve the aims of the death penalty, retribution and deterrence through other means, such as life without parole. It involves saying things like, what about innocent people being sentenced to death? We can all agree, regardless of whether we support the death penalty or not, we can all agree that the risk of an innocent person being being executed is unpalatable. And certainly when you look at anti-death penalty discourses from the late 1990s into the 2000s, you can see the shift towards more pragmatic arguments, endorsing the use of life without parole, or at least saying that um, life without parole serves the same purposes as the death penalty, a greater focus on the risk of executing innocent people. And these are all important and effective narratives, but it does come with its problems. Saying things such as you can still achieve the aims of retribution and deterrence through life without parole, it normalises long prison sentences. Saying things such as what about the risk of executing the innocents? Innocent, well, that marginalises the, the guilty, if you like, those who do, who are guilty, who are factually guilty. It suggests that it doesn't really matter how we treat those who are factually guilty. Now, all these sorts of concerns with pragmatic approaches to abolition aren't exactly new. Angela Davis, Marie Gottschalk, all those who work in the field of prison abolitionism have, have very similar points. Uh, but I was looking at specifically death penalty, anti-death penalty efforts. And so I was looking at these. Um, problems with these um, pragmatic claims and looked at what went on amongst the slavery abolitionists and realized that we have the same problems. We had the same problems when it came to fighting slavery. Some slavery abolitionists took that pragmatic approach where they were trying to appeal to the values of 
racist, essentially. And we know now that that approach sows all sorts of problems, um, longer term problems, without tackling the moral root of the problem. Then you might well have legal change, but you don't see that change in social attitudes that I was talking about earlier. And so that's why at the heart of my book, I argue for this radical, more radical approach, one that really is centered on the moral argument against death penalty, not looking at sort of piecemeal approaches that appeal to the values of those who support the death penalty already. So when it comes to the idea of dignity, I realized that in the history of slavery abolitionism, not very many people, not very many abolitionists would talk explicitly about the idea of dignity. But the arguments they raised were essentially dignitarian concerns. That idea of what about the idea that we should all be treated with equal concern and respect, for example. When you look at Frederick Douglass's writings against slavery, for example, there's a lot in there about the harm that slavery does, not just to the enslaved, but also to the dignity of slaveholders and those who support slavery. And there's also a lot of talk about um, what the idea of slavery means to America as a constitutional system, the dignity of the Constitution. And so then you read in all this stuff about slavery abolitionists, and it's very difficult not to see the parallels in contemporary arguments against the death penalty. And the Arkansas rape case was very interesting. So this was going on while I was writing the book, um, where the governor of Arkansas wanted to have eight executions over a period of 11 days, I think it was, because they were running out of the drugs that they needed to carry out lethal injections. So not running out the the drugs that they could use for lethal injections were coming to their expiry date, their best before date. So he wanted to to rush through these executions because God forbid that you use out of date drugs when executing people. So, um, so there was all this big um, publicity campaign against this rush to executions, and you saw the same arguments coming out. The idea, and it was a judge in um, this case, obviously went to the Arkansas Supreme Court, and one of the dissenting judges pointed out that. If you just put all these eight people through the same process, they're not being treated as individual human beings. In other words, that Kantian concept of human dignity, individual dignity. The dissenting judge also talked about the the impact that this would have on the dignity of the community, the fact that we're debasing ourselves by just committing a mass killing, if you like. Again, in parallels with Frederick Douglass's um, comments on the dignity of slaveholders and dignity of the wider community. And then she also talks about the dignity of the legal system as a whole and the fact that the the integrity of the criminal justice system is called into account when executions are rushed like this. And so you see this, like you called it a relational concept of dignity and the idea that all these dignities are interrelated. Um, And I thought that that story captured neatly what I was trying to get across about these sort of tripartite accounts of dignity, the dignity of the individual, dignity of the wider community, and dignity of the institution. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So that strikes me that it's in the best nature of socio-legal research that you're developing not just research into a particular field, the death penalty 
but also developing our understanding of the concept of dignity. And I wondered what you found that might help other researchers or socio-legal scholars, particularly in relation to dignity in the first instance, whether we could understand it better through your work. I, I would hope so. And one of the nicest things that someone said to me about this book, although reading a draft, it was um, someone who works in healthcare who said they found the idea of dignity, that tripartite account of dignity, helpful for their own research in, in the context of healthcare and ethics. Um, and so I would hope that, that's, that I've made a contribution to the idea of dignity as well. Um, yeah, and I think certainly if, if people find that account helpful for their own research, then I'd be delighted by that. There is a link in your book, isn't there, between dignity and, and the increasingly fashionable concept, perhaps, of vulnerability. And I wondered what you made of that interrelationship. Yeah, the idea of Martha Feynman's um, concept of vulnerability, the idea that every person is vulnerable regardless of who we are. Um, uh, there's a danger of vulnerability theory. I know people have written about this already, about vulnerability theory being stretched too far. Um, but I found it helpful to capture the idea that everybody is vulnerable regardless of how secure they seem to be. Um, and I think it captures that idea that regardless of what a person has done or is alleged to have done, they still have that vulnerability around them. Fascinating. So is there anything that you would have done differently if you were starting this research from scratch? Yes, I think I could do a whole podcast on what I would do differently, to be honest. Um, I think there's... Um, there's the usual issues that I think all writers have whenever I've sort of a few occasions when I flick through the book just to find something that I've written that I read passages and think they're incredibly clunky and I wish I could have reworded them. Um, things like the structure of the book, I find that the introduction was very, very long now. I think I could have made that much shorter and a whole bunch of that introduction could have formed a separate chapter. But I think the thing that I regret the most is that. Um, I went out to Philadelphia, it must have been in about 2015, I think 2014 or 2015, to interview people who'd been exonerated from death row to find out about their role as abolitionists. So there's a movement called Witness to Innocence, which is made up of people who've served time on death row, then been released because they've been found to be innocent. And they are incredibly effective as abolitionists. They go out and give talks in schools, to legislators, to all sorts of people, just telling their story and making people realise that it could happen to anyone. Literally anybody could be falsely accused of a horrible crime and sentenced to death. Um, and so I went out to interview them on their role as abolitionists. For a whole bunch of reasons, those interviews didn't find their way into the finished book. And I think for two reasons, I regret that a lot. So firstly, going back to what I said earlier about Du Bois and his sociology of the oppressed, this idea that as activists, as scholars, rather, sorry, as scholars, if we can give a voice to the oppressed, we should. And I had a chance here to, to give a voice to those who have had a very traumatic experience. Um, I think my research would have been much richer. I think my arguments in my book would have been much richer if I'd included some of those, those interviews. Um, but I think also, secondly, I think it was incredibly insensitive of me to ask these people to tell me about incredibly traumatizing aspects of their lives and then not do anything with that material. Um, 
I think I should have basically um and I regret doing that a lot I would have done that differently so in future I know I'll be much more mindful of what I'm asking for people in that position um and I'll make sure that I do make the best of that material their views did inform the research and I do acknowledge that in the book I just didn't quote from them directly and I think going back to Du Bois's sociology of the oppressed I should have quoted them from them directly to give them a voice rather than just using their words to inspire my own research on the issue. I think, yeah, going going to your question, if I would do anything differently, I think that would be it. Can you tell us why you didn't include the interviews? Was it an institutional constraint or? Um, it's, it, with hindsight, it sounds quite ridiculous, but it was true at the time. So um, I had um, a son, uh, my wife gave birth to a son shortly after those interviews. And that consumed my life for the next year. And by the time I came back to sort of going through the interviews and getting the transcripts, I realized that I couldn't find many of the people who I'd interviewed because I'd interviewed them at a um, at a conference where they were all together in one place and just been disorganized, really, after the birth of my son. I just realized I couldn't sort of track them down to verify that they were happy with what I was going to say. And then next thing I knew, it was sort of 2017. And... I was coming up to finishing the draft of the manuscript and um, starting a new job. And I thought, I just want to get this, get this done. I think that's another regret I have is that when it came to finishing the manuscripts, I was starting a new job in, um, in Cardiff. And I set myself the goal of getting it done before I started my job, which was a bit of an artificial goal. I think if I just thought, no, I want to get this right, then I would have been able to to chase up those people, get get them to approve what I wanted to say, what what the quotes I wanted to use, um, and then I could have worked on it for another year, maybe. So, um, so yeah, that's that was the reason. Which, like I said, with hindsight, sounds sounds almost silly, but at the time, you're consumed with work, consumed with fatherhood, things fall to the wayside. I think many scholars and and all human beings would be able to identify with that we're all frail um at times so I, I thank you if you're really honest answer because i think that's really helpful and perhaps when we all make mistakes i know i certainly do well i think yeah for certainly for junior scholars who worry about these sort of things i think they people need to realize that that all scholars sort of have those moments where where they can't do what they wanted to do in research terms yeah we are all fallible so let's draw this to a close and think about whether it is at all possible to end on a hopeful note. So you note in the book that in 1999, there were 99 executions. And in 2016, there were 20. I googled and found 22 in 2019. And you refer to the framing of the South as a, or slavery in the South as a peculiar institution and talk about it as a peculiar problem. And I wondered whether you thought there is any hope in the United States, as there might be in post-apartheid South Africa or post-war Germany, of abolishing the death penalty entirely? I think what was interesting in post-apartheid South Africa was that there was a very clear um, national conversation, if you like, about the legacy of apartheid and the legacy of and the roots of the death penalty in apartheid and the links between apartheid and death penalty. So that helps foster that abolitionist discourse if you like in america there is much less conversation about the legacy of slavery 
you know, Brian Stevenson at the Equal Justice Initiative in Alabama is doing some incredible work on this um, and has written some incredible pieces on the links between um, slavery, racism, and the criminal justice system. And um, and until that national conversation gets going, I'm not as convinced that um, that there will be nationwide abolition. I think one of the problems is that well, when I was writing this book, the Supreme Court was much more divided. You had four staunch conservatives, four staunch liberals, and Justice Kennedy as the swing vote. And there was a feeling at the time that Justice Kennedy was sympathetic to the dignity arguments. He often sided with the liberals in death penalty cases. He was clearly troubled by the death penalty. And there was a feeling that he might provide the swing vote in a 5-4 decision to abolish the death penalty nationally. But um, Supreme Court, as it's constituted today, is, is quite staunchly conservative. I don't think there's any chance really of getting a Supreme Court decision um, to abolish the death penalty um, nationwide. So what we really have is statewide efforts. And there are, um, I think it's 28 states that still have the death penalty. So it's not really just one death penalty that is being fought. It's 28 different death penalty systems that have to be fought, 28 different abolitionist efforts. Now, Colorado abolished the death penalty this year, and there are several states that haven't had an execution for many years. I think Wyoming, in Wyoming, I think the last execution was 1992. So Perhaps some others will give up the death penalty over the next five years or so, and the number of death sentences will continue to wane and the number of executions will continue to decline. But in terms of sort of nationwide abolition, um, I, I'm not hopeful in the short term, to be honest, which um, is not a particularly uh, hopeful point to end on, but, but it's the truth, I think. And are you still working in this area or have you got new projects underway? I am working in this area. I still have the death penalty as one of my research um, topics. So the, I'm currently working on a British Academy funded project with some colleagues in Sussex, Maynooth and, um, and the University of the West Indies looking at the colonial legacy of the death penalty. So looking at how the UK exported death penalties to other countries, looking at how those death penalties operate in those jurisdictions with the legacy of colonialism and looking at the UK's contemporary efforts to abolish the death penalty worldwide. And so again, that has that historical link, just as I'm in America, I was arguing that contemporary efforts have to be linked to historical efforts to abolish slavery. I think today the contemporary British efforts to encourage abolition elsewhere has to acknowledge the colonial history of the death penalty in other countries. Yes, so we end where we began in Britain. Yes, well, yes, we do. Thank you, Barrett. Thank you very much for your time. It's been a really Thank wonderful you. conversation. Thank you very much for having me.